Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I run the Production Advice website, where I try and help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, is my co-host from reaperblog.net, John Tidy. John, how's tricks? Hey, it's going real well. Thank you. Excellent. And this week, we're answering a question that I kind of don't want to answer. I get asked it fairly often. Yeah, it, Basically, I don't think you should do this, but uh, lots of people want to, and I, actually there are times when you have no choice. So it's a valid question to answer, and we're going to do our best to answer it. And the question is, how do you get dynamics back into a track that has already had them taken out? So if you've got something that's super limited or super compressed, and so the dynamics have kind of been pulled out of it, is there anything you can do to add some life and some uh, pop back into that to help it sound better? Uh John, is that something you have to do at all? I believe I have had to do that. It definitely sounds like a, uh, a, a trick or a technique that a mastering engineer should know. I, I think I've also ran into this when doing vocal recording to like a two track where it's already kind of like mastered and you need to make room for the vocal to fit in. So okay. Yeah. I think this will be somewhat relevant to that as well. That's a good point. Yeah, um, absolutely. If If, yeah, if you kind of, are getting a, a pre-made beat from somewhere and yeah, want to overdub some vocals on top of it and there there isn't obvious space left in there, then yeah, some of the strategies we're talking about here could be useful. So we are going to give some useful hints, tips, uh, strategies for this kind of thing. But before we do, I want to start with telling you not to. <laughs> um, it's kind of, it's why I don't want to answer the question really, because the, I mean, it's not really possible. If you have a track that's been poorly EQ'd, you can improve that EQ. Um, if you have a mix that needs tweaking, you can tweak the mix. But if you have a mix where the dynamics have been pushed too far, whether it's too much compression, too much limiting, clipping, whatever it might be, it's impossible to get back those original natural dynamics. Uh, if you think about the kind of extreme example of digital clipping, where you know the, the peak levels of the waveforms have been sliced off, you can never get all of the information back from there. Having said that, sometimes you can get some of it back, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but the same is true in all cases. You can improve things, but you can never get them as good as they would have been beforehand. So it is always better if you feel that something you've been supplied to master or something you've mixed yourself and you want to master isn't sufficiently dynamic. It's always better to try and go back to the mix and improve the mix rather than using any of the strategies that we're going to talk about in this episode. So that's the kind of disclaimer um, at the beginning, and that's why it's so important not to overdo this stuff. One of my concerns um, about the, the, the current trend that we've seen over the last decade for super limited, super loud masters is if anything were to happen to the original source mix, I mean, if it's done in the mixing stage, it's done in the mixing stage, that's that. But if there was an original dynamic mix that got crushed somewhere later down in the mastering chain because people, that's what they felt was necessary, and then the original sources are lost, there's nothing you can do. There's no way you can go back to how it would have sounded. Uh, and that happened in recent years. The, was it Universal? I think there was a huge fire and all of the master tapes were lost. In fact, nobody knows how many master tapes were actually lost, but it was hundreds yeah. of thousands of recordings. Um and in this digital age with hard drives that are particularly fragile, you know, it's it's not that unlikely a scenario. Basically, don't do this. <laughs> but if you're going to do it, then we're going to try and help. 
so what are those situations where we might have to do this? Like, why are these sorts of uh, projects coming to us? So, I mean, there's a few scenarios where, well, one of them is <laughs> if all the original source tapes got burned in a massive fire, <laughs> for example. Um, yeah. But there are other situations where you might not have the original master tapes. It could be vintage material. Um, you know, there have been times when I have remastered material from a vinyl disc because the original master tapes of the project don't are lost or damaged by, uh, could be, you know, moisture, the <laughs> tapes get moldy, believe it or not. People kind of, you go into a tape store and it's dripping with water, or maybe there wasn't an original master that was any better. If it's a, say a recording of a live gig, maybe all that exists is a stereo recording taken straight from the desk output. Um, and actually that's a fairly common situation these days. Lots of bands are recording pretty much every gig they do, but I don't think many of them will be recording at multi-track. It will probably just be a copy of whatever goes through the front of house. Another situation might be where the mix was not dynamic to begin with. And that's because that's the way that the client wanted it. Uh, for whatever, you know, when they're in the studio, they're requesting extreme loudness or extreme processing, or maybe not even extreme, maybe just more than you as a mastering engineer think might be appropriate for whatever it is you're working on. Um, that's a situation where you've got to be careful, though, because if that's the way that the client wanted it originally, it's unlikely that they're going to want a master that has more dynamics. So you have to kind of tread carefully there. I wouldn't say that you kind of got to slam on the brakes, definitely. Um, when I get a source that comes in that I think is has been pushed too hard, and I can maybe hear a compressor pumping or over-limiting or clipping or whatever, um, I will usually do a first master that I send back and say, okay, this is how I'm hearing it. Um, you know, I'm just curious. I feel like maybe I could get more out of this if I had a more dynamic version to to work from. Do you have access to that? Or do you have something like that? And sometimes you get, no, this is what it is, go with it. And then other times they're like, oh, sure, yeah, here, we can we'll take the final limiter off because somebody has done, you know, a test master or whatever to try and get it up to level and make it sound the way that they think they want it to be. And they're very happy for you to uh, work from an earlier version of it. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a really effective strategy. Does that work for you, John? Yeah, if, if it's too limited, definitely ask if you can get something without the master limiter on it. I can also kind of imagine a scenario where it's like they've been working on this mix all night in this expensive studio. You know, they print it and it ends up, you know, having a little more compression than they could hear in the middle of the night, that sort of thing. And they send it to you because they're on a deadline and then there's no way they can go back. There's just no more time. So. No more time or no more money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. It, you Like you say, it could be a late night thing. Uh, it could just be a kind of listener fatigue thing. Um, it could be unfamiliar monitoring. You know, things don't sound the way people necessarily expect them to when they go to, it doesn't even have to be a super expensive studio, but just a different studio where, where the monitoring sounds different. So yeah, that's a really good point. The third scenario that I can think of would be where maybe the goal wasn't extreme loudness, um, but even so, the processing that's been used is an integral part of the mix. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you've... Lots of engineers like to work into uh, mix into a bus compressor. So they have something like an SSLG series or whatever it might be on the, the stereo output of the mix, and actually that compression is an integral part of the sound of that mix. If, 
if they disabled that compressor, the mix would completely change um, and just sounds completely different. So it's not like anybody has any particular intention, uh, but that's the way that it sounds. Um, some people mix into limiters. I don't recommend it, but well, certainly not digital brick wall limiters, but uh, kind of a, an, an older style character limiter, if, if you like. Um, that can be a sound that people like, they want to go for. Maybe just something somewhere was clipping and people didn't realize, or a piece of gear was saturating more than expected, or somebody liked the way that it sounded when it was saturating. And in the cold light of day at the mastering session, like you say, you kind of think, well, maybe we should have done that differently. But to, it would just be too much work to kind of go back and, you know, if, if you're, whatever it is, a few days, week or two into a mix and you've been slaving over this thing, you know, that we've all had that experience of, oh, can we just tweak the hi-hat a little bit? And an hour later you go, what happened? The mix just fell apart. <laughs> you know, somewhere that you go that little bit too far, tweak too many things and it just disappears. And there's this kind of, people don't want to risk that. So it's like, no, we're happy with that. It's okay. It's not perfect, but we're going to keep it. So yeah, there's a bunch of reasons why something might sound more compressed, more limited uh, than you would like when it arrives at the mastering session. And then the question is, uh, what are you going to do about it? Okay, so what's the kind of simple or the easiest way to help with this? Well, going back to what I said before um, and reminding people that you can't do it, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't genuinely restore dynamics. There are actually a lot of things that you can do that make it seem like you've restored dynamics or at least improved things. And my favorite and probably the simplest is to use some EQ. I've actually done videos in the past showing that EQ doesn't change the dynamics of a sound. So anybody listening who's seen those videos is going to be scratching their heads now going, what am I talking about? But uh, the, maybe the simplest example is if you consider, if somebody was going for really extreme loudness um, in the mix, one of the things that hard, is hardest to get with high loudness levels is heavy bass. If you're pushing heavy bass into a compressor, it's going to make the compressor pump more. If you're pushing it into a limiter or a clipper, it's going to distort faster and more audibly probably than other elements in the mix. So a very common strategy when loudness is the goal is to restrict the amount of bass that's going in. So you might have a, you know, a track that's going in that has a really pounding kick drum. Because loudness is the goal, that may be thinned right out. You could take a lot of the bottom end weight out of that. That will make all of the processing uh more forgiving of the the high loudness levels. So if our goal is to make something sound more dynamic, then one of the easiest things you can do if you're hearing something that's bass light is to turn it down a little bit to give yourself some headroom and then add that bass back in. And if you're lucky, if the processing that was used wasn't too extreme, it can sound pretty natural. It can really add some nice thump and depth and weight to the original sound. You haven't actually changed the dynamics. As I said, all of the original dynamics processing, the compression and limiting, whatever it might be that was in the sound is still there. But because you're bringing that, that low end out and there's a lot of energy and a lot of power down there, even quite small changes can make something sound a lot more lively and responsive. So I think that would always be my first port of call, probably. If I have something where I, I know that I've got to work from this source, it is what it is, and I want a result that sounds more dynamic try lifting out some bass and see whether it helps. Providing you pull the level back enough uh, so that you have the, the headroom available, it's, it's a very clean change to make. Uh, 
some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute is really not clean. And one of the things you've got to be really careful about it is that you don't do more bad than good <laughs> by, you know, yeah. it's, it's a kind of a benefit outweighs the cost. But yeah, EQ is a very clean, as you say, linear, um, controllable process to use and to experiment with um, and to just see whether it can help. And it's not just bass. Um, if the mix sounds a little bit dull, um, maybe just tweaking up the high frequencies a little bit um, can help add some life back in, if, especially if something's been very heavily limited and all the transient detail has been crushed out. You can't restore that stuff back in, but maybe you can make it feel a little bit more open, a little bit more spacious, um, a little bit more exciting with some high-frequency EQ. Uh, I would be cautious of the mids um, because anybody who's played around with EQ post-compression knows that it has a much bigger effect than if you use it prior to the dynamics processing. So if you've got something that's super crushed, the danger is, especially in the mid-range where our ears are most sensitive, if you lift that up too much, you're just kind of making something that, that was uh, intense and relentless and exhausting <laughs> even more so. Um, but if there's an element in the mix that is maybe just a dynamic instrument and you can isolate that closely enough uh, and just find the just the right boost or cut in the right place, all of that stuff can potentially help just open things out and let a bit of life and air back into the master um, and be beneficial. So EQ is definitely my first port of call. The next thing you could try which is, and we're immediately into something that is not a linear process where you definitely could do more harm than good, is to try using one of the declipping algorithms that are out there. And the two most famous are the declipper in Isotope RX, and there's a declip algorithm in a, uh, an application called Stereo Tool, which is a bit of a Swiss army knife of uh, stuff and has a, I find, pretty tough to use interface. Um, but if you can get it right, either one of those can get you some some good stuff back. RX in particular, if you have something that's just been purely digitally clipped, can have quite a miraculous result. I've used it. Yeah, and does it work for you? Pleasantly surprised by it many times, but it's it's definitely not perfect and it takes several attempts to like dial it in right. Less is more with that. Less is more and it's and it's really worth um really tweaking the parameters to to see what can be achieved. I've got a reputation as a bit of a miracle worker on a couple of occasions just by using RX. It's particularly good um, on kind of simple arrangements and, and especially classical. So the two examples, there was one recording I had which was um, a piano recording. It was a really nice re recording, but had been heavily clipped. And I don't think what was restored really sounded as good as it would have done beforehand but it just completely cleaned that distortion out. And then another example was uh, a choir with a soprano singer. Um, and same thing. You can, it, it can just magically change the distortion into something that doesn't sound like distortion anymore and is therefore way, way better. Because especially on things like that, very pure uh, sounds, the distortion can be particularly unpleasant. You know, if you've got a distorted electric guitar and you clip it a little bit, it probably is not going to sound that bad. It just adds a bit of grit and fuzz to, to things or fizz maybe would be a better word um yeah. but it, yeah if you try the doing piano that, sounds so bad with distortion oh, yeah especially in like a something that's supposed to be quiet and emotional adding the distortion there is is really not helpful absolutely yeah it's the exact opposite of what you want from that kind of sound <laughs> um yeah. 
it's just not a, a valuable kind of part of the of the production. Um, the, I mean, I think the other thing to say is it's worth experimenting with these things, even when you think maybe they won't work. And if you're using that, you might want to limit it to a certain frequency range inside of, uh, I think RX standalone can do that. Um, but I have used the plugin on, on the full mix or master. Um, definitely used it in, in mixing on individual tracks because I've had to clean up snares that have been totally destroyed by a, a mic preamp set wrong or a compressor set wrong. Um, and it, yeah, it's miracle sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when it works, it's like, it, it really is like magic. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, you can, it's better to use it kind of, or it's, it can be more effective to use it on elements inside of a mix, but quite often we don't have the the flexibility yeah. or the ability to do that at mastering. But the other thing I would say is I only ever use these things as needed. So there was one job in particular where it was sent to me specifically because somebody had got distortion they wanted me to remove. And I ended up, I think, with about four or five presets for different sections of the songs, depending on what was happening. Um, mm -hmm. And I would kind of just grab, you know, like two seconds here and three seconds. So don't be tempted to run this processing over the whole song just for the sake of two or three seconds of distortion. Kind of really hone in and use it as little as you possibly can. Um, and actually, while we're I didn't have this in the list of things to mention, but while we're talking about RX, uh, another thing you can try for the kind of harsh, clicky distortion that, that clipping kind of produces is to just run the de-click module with various different settings and see whether that... Now there, you're really not... like The, the point of the declipper is to try and restore the original waveform. Um, yeah. So you actually have to turn the signal down to make space for the extra peaks. A declicker is never going to do that, but it can often soften or take out the the, the result, the, the ugly results of the clipping. So you're not really getting any dynamics back that way, but at least it sounds better. Um, yeah. So that can be worth trying... There's also one, there's a D, what have we done? D-click, D-crackle, I think, is yeah. another algorithm that, you know, it's sometimes it's these similar, things... It's similar, but it's it, yeah. it can handle those, those, I guess, the smaller random ones or maybe the wider sort of clicks, not so much transient, like sharp transient. Yeah, clicks. the the declipper tends to be kind of little bits that spike over momentarily, whereas the the um I've forgotten what it's crackle. called. Crackle. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the decrackle is is maybe for more continuous stuff. If if you've got a kind of constant sort of fizz of something running through a recording, experiment with these things. You know, if you have access to something like RX or some other kind of restoration software, just if if you have something where you've got a fault like this. Just do, give it a go. There's there's nothing to be lost by experimenting, and if you get something that that sounds better to you, then then you're winning. Um, and I, I'm there are others as well. There's a ton of I haven't uh, experimented with a lot of different options, mainly stereo tool and Isotope RX, but I know there are other applications out there. Um, so uh, that's definitely what's something that's worth looking into. And I think the last thing that I want to say about declipping is to be careful. Um, I mean, A, you know, sometimes it works great. Other times it doesn't. In that case, don't use it. <laughs> I don't think really it's, it's kind of, oh, well, maybe it's doing something. Maybe I should run it. It's like if you don't hear a clear advantage, I wouldn't mess with it. Um, 
but also be careful sometimes we because in a situation like this you get very focused on the thing that you're trying to fix and you can sometimes miss the fact that it's causing more problems than it's solving so a classic example would be well, actually de-clicking but for any of these processes be very careful on brass instruments um there are so many harmonics in a brass instrument tone that and when you look at the waveforms, you can see from the shape of them, there's actually lots of stuff in there that kind of looks a bit like peaks. Um, and it's not a peak, it's just kind of really sharp changes in the waveform because of the the harmonic content. They're so harmonically rich. And if you're unlucky, I, I mean, a de-click algorithm is the one that I've had experience of this, but it will eat those things alive. Um, the, the clicks will go, but you end up with this kind of, it's almost like a, a sub-modulation thing. I don't know whether you ever listen to an old VHS, hi-fi VHS recording. It kind of adds this low kind of <laughs> stuff under things. Um, and yeah. that's that's basically what happens. And, you know, you don't want to be doing that. If you need to de-click, particularly a brass instrument, do it by hand the old-fashioned way, click by click, um, to minimise the damage. And keep an ear out for that kind of side effect uh, when you're using the declipping or distortion removing algorithms as well because it can often it can take away the kind of the harsh gritty stuff that you're focused on and it adds all this extra mulch that maybe you, you don't notice until it's too late so it's definitely needs to be done with care the next hint that i want to suggest one of the next technique that i want to suggest actually i almost put it before declipping on my list because i'm not a huge fan of declippers i mean it's they are like magic when they work but I don't know about you, they probably only work maybe one in four times, I would say, in a way that I like. Um, but pr it's pro if it's going to work, it's a good thing to do early in the chain so the other decisions can involve the, the cleaned up sound. So that's the logic behind this. But the, the next strategy I want to talk about is just simple automation. We've been kind of focusing very much on what you might call problems with microdynamics, heavy limiting, heavy compression, saturation, all that kind of stuff where, you know, you're kind of, everything's being crushed up into the top end of the digital scale and you want to kind of open it out some more. But the other thing that typically happens when music has been treated like that is that you reduce the overall contrast, the, the longer term macrodynamic contrast between, say, the verse and the chorus. Um, and sometimes you even get it so that the verse ends up being louder than the chorus, which always annoys the hell out of me. Um, but um, one of the nice things that we can do in mastering, and again, you have to be careful with it because you don't want to go too far, is we've got the option of just fixing that by, I mean, let's say you had a verse that was louder than a chorus. It's really simple. If you put the right automation change in at the right point to restore that balance, um, and there are various ways of doing it. You could do long, slow changes um, so that when you get to a certain point, there's room for you to push the level back up and give the louder section the punch that it needs. I typically tend to do very fast changes and it's just a question of finding the right place. And sometimes it can be in the middle of a bar or kind of straight after a, a drum fill or whatever it is. There's almost always somewhere where you can kind of disguise the change to ease the level back from a, a place of high intensity so that when you get to the next point where you want that high intensity, you've got room to move the level back up. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about musically rather than in terms of sort of just headroom really um because I mean, we'll talk about this more later but all of these techniques are going to require that you pull the loudness back somewhat to give yourself room to add these dynamics back in um and the same thing applies here if the verse was louder than the chorus but you want the chorus to be louder the chorus is presumably already as loud as it can possibly be so you're going to have to pull the verse back 
in comparison to that. I mean, I use automation a fair bit just in general mastering, just to kind of balance how much compression and limiting is happening at certain points of the song and to get things right. But if you have a source that's been pushed much too hard, uh, yeah, it's a really simple strategy, but literally you're basically kind of riding the fader. Um, and I'm I'm pretty sure that's something you've done yourself, isn't it, John? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of standard mastering workflow now. You know, once I started doing it, it was like, oh, I, I need to be doing this in every project. It is. It's addictive. The The more success you have with it, the more, <laughs> the more tempted you get. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, I, I rather than, you know, riding the threshold of the compressor, it's much easier to draw in volume automation, whether I want to push something harder into the compressor or turn it down. More likely, I'm turning things down just slightly after I've already kind of given everything a little boost to get towards the loudness um, just to, to manage the, you know, verse chorus bridge sections, or sometimes it's like balancing panning. Maybe the, the stereo balance is just slightly off, or maybe I want it to be slightly more off to make it sound more wide or cover up some other issue. But yeah, uh, automation, I think it's something that people that are new to mastering forget that they can do. I think it's also, actually, this is something that um, was mentioned in a Q&A panel just recently and that Ken Scott mentioned, um, legendary Beatles producer. The question was, do you have a favourite piece of gear? And most people on the panel were like, no, don't care what the gear is. It's all about the way that you use it, which I was very pleased to hear because that's exactly what I believe too. Uh, but Ken made a great point where he said, faders. You know, he said he said... These days, so many people are mixing in computers and the temptation is to just set up a mix and let it run um, and to basically not touch the faders, which, and I mean, he was thinking literally of having a desk with, so that you can kind of play the mixing console in, in the way that he's been used to over the years. Um, but you can do the same thing using automation. You have to pay attention to, to so that every change at every point in the song has been thought about and planned and is happening for a reason. In my experience, that can lead to songs that actually might be, in terms of microdynamics, they might not be heavily over-limited, heavily compressed, whatever. They might be fine from that respect. Plenty of headroom, you know, quite conservative loudness levels. They just don't have enough macrodynamics in terms of the changes from section to section of the song um, because people haven't thought to do that um, and they can be made to sound better. You can bring even more impact just by using automation in the, the way that you're describing. So... Yeah, definitely a cool strategy. Yeah. Even if someone does do a lot of automation in the mix, sometimes they can't, um, you know, once they start down that path, they can't have an objective opinion over the whole thing. And that's why the mastering engineer is so important because they can hear it for the first time and hear that there's not so much dynamics between the verse and the chorus. Whereas the mixer would already be in such a technical headspace at that point where he's automating things. He might completely miss that. Yeah, that's a great point. That's the kind of the mastering perspective, I guess you could call it, where, yeah, you kind of have this zoomed out view and you're kind of seeing the song within the context of the album, whereas when we're working on a mixing or recording a song, yeah, you're you're right in there in the details. Um, and sometimes it can just even feel overwhelming. If you've got kind of, I don't know, 24, 48 tracks of automation happening already, um, the idea of adding even more automation on top of that kind of seems crazy. And you kind of think, well, everything needs to come up here. I guess somebody could automate the master fader, perhaps. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's an, we have an opportunity to, to help the, the music 
by doing this at the mastering stage. I guess you could argue it would be better done at the mix stage, but actually there's not a huge amount of difference between somebody automating the master fader and us automating the input to a mastering chain um, from the source. So yeah, definitely a good thing to consider. Now, the next thing I've got here, I'm not going to spend too much time on because I'm really not a fan of it, but it's kind of, I've got it in the list for completeness. Some people have suggested using uh, an expander to restore missing dynamics to a mix. So an expander is, as it sounds, kind of the opposite of a compressor. So rather than pulling the level down when the signal passes a particular threshold, it will push the music up when it passes a certain threshold or down if it passes a low threshold, if you like. So it's, it's all about trying to increase the difference, the contrast between the louder and quiet sections of the track. In theory, that sounds perfect. In practice, I mean, the reason I don't like it is my experience is it never really works that well for me. I, I've never had any luck with that. It's, it's, it's built into the ozone multiband and like I've never had it work. Like I've had, I've tried tools like that and it's just like ended up clipping the entire thing because it just pushes everything up. <laughs> it's like, it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the same for me. Um, I think, I mean, I think it probably could with, if, if the mix was sparse enough. The problem I have yeah. with it tends to be if you have something that is super squashed going in, I mean, the way that it, I described it there, the processing has to decide, okay, if something is past this threshold, I'm going to make it louder. And if it's past this threshold, I'm going to make it quieter. But when you've got something that's rammed all the way through, there are, there's no contrast between those loud and those quiet sections. So it's kind of like trying to, to I don't know, gate use gates on a tom track to get rid of snare and kick bleed. Um, but the snare and the kick are loud enough that they keep triggering the gate as well. At the end of the day, I think it's, it's easier to just do it by hand uh, using yeah. automation, as we described previously. In theory, you could use it on some... You could even use it on a drum beat to, to kind of get some hits louder and quieter than others. But it just... Yeah, it, I don't think the well the examples that I've tried have not been sensitive enough to get anything that I thought was usable. Yeah, especially when you have like like if you have a clearly defined beat, but then you have a melody over it, using the expansion on that, that's going to like turn down the quiet parts of the beat, but that's going to totally mess with the vocal in a weird way. So I can't see that working very well. There is something that I have used that's depending on how you do it, it it could be similar to expansion. Um, but transient shaping, I've, mm -hmm. I've used this with some success. There's one from Joey Sturgis Tones called Transify, which is a multiband uh, transient shaper. It has low mids and highs and, or is it four bands? M might be four bands. I'm not looking at it at the moment. Um, but you can increase or decrease the attack and increase or decrease the sustain of a sound. And and for certain things that can really help was if you want like more kick impact or like more snare attack on it and you only have the two track it can be pretty effective to like add more like sharp transients to the to the mix makes it sound more dynamic yeah i think i would agree um it's definitely like you got to be very careful if it's already if it's already loud if it's already really compressed then it can be tricky like you're still going to end up with something quieter than when you started with, most likely. But you can kind of make it seem like the, you know, the the stuff isn't so crushed. I've played around with them. I don't use them that often. And I'm just trying to think whether that's because they didn't work or just because I kind of feel like... I think that they they can be helpful, if some, especially if something's been over-limited. Um, because, that, you know, that's the kind of symptom you get. The transients become 
have, have just had too much life and energy taken away from them. Everything becomes kind of dull sounding and, and, and kind of reined in. So that can be where they're helpful. I think the problem is that quite often stuff that's in that place also has a load of distortion in the sound. And so adding in that transient detail just makes things sound more distorted and unpleasant. Um, and I often, quite often I've, I've experimented with things like that and ended up just using some high frequency EQ instead, uh, yeah. as, as we mentioned, to just kind of open out the, the stuff, but it's a kind of less aggressive processing. But uh, that's just my experience, and I haven't invested a ton of time into to trying to figure it out. So um, I think that's definitely something that's worth kind of experimenting with. Except again, at, at this point, I'm kind of feeling like really maybe. Well, no, we're talking about situations where we don't have any alternatives, so, so it is a valid approach. So the final strategy um, is probably going to sound crazy, but you can make things sound more dynamic by using more compression. Um, even when something has already been super compressed or especially super limited. And you've got to have the right settings. But the, the basic idea is that you have an attack time that is not too fast so that you allow what transient there is through. Then you use quite an aggressive ratio to, to get a big change in the, the signal level um, and not too fast a release time. I guess it's it's similar territory to transient designer. Yeah. Because you're you're kind of changing the shape of the overcompressed wave and you're kind of faking some dynamics. I mean, there's an element of it to the way that I tend to use compression and mastering in general. I'm I like slow attack times, um, or slower attack times in general, and then let the limiter handle the peak data really cleanly. And it can be a great way of adding extra punch into something because you just let a little bit of that initial kind of pulse of energy in the beat through and then control it a little bit with the compression and it can just add some extra life uh, into the sound sometimes and, and also pull things together and if if you're lucky when you're mastering something that's uh, got compromised dynamics you can make it sound a little bit livelier especially if you use some of the other strategies that we've talked about like automation um, like EQ, you can kind of push the EQ a little bit harder than you might otherwise have done on the way in, knowing that you're using that compression to control the change and help bits of the signal jump out more than they might otherwise have done, especially if you're using multiband compression. That can be an effective strategy. Um, so yeah, if you've got something where you've successfully declipped it and then you've got some nice flattering EQ and you've got some gentle automation changes to help add life, and then you just find just the right amount of extra compression to bring in, and you don't push it too hard, it can be a valuable strategy. Um, have you ever had any luck with that? I don't think I've gone to compression for that. No, well, I mean, it, it's a counterintuitive thing, right? To the idea, you know, you have something that's overcompressed, you're going to use more compression to try and help it. Um, and I mean, it certainly yeah. doesn't already always work. It really depends on the, the material the signal, what you're trying to achieve, the, the overall sound. But, you know, I think to, to for completeness sake, it's it's worth mentioning. Um, it would definitely be one of the last things that I would try. Um, generally, what you want to do is back away from the compression and, and uh, bring more uh, life into the original sound without adding any extra processing. But it can be a useful ingredient um, in some cases, especially if you are let's say, you know, using automation to increase the contrast between the verse and the chorus. Um, maybe the, you know, the distinction in sound between the verse, which will have less dynamic processing because you pull the level back, versus the chorus, which then just tickles the compressor a little bit. Um, 
that's probably going to be a good thing. What I would say is you almost certainly don't want to add extra limiting at this stage. I don't really, maybe just something to really control those peaks. If the, if the compression you're using is opening things out and you, there's a risk of it going too far, but well, and that leads me onto the, the, the final point, kind of sum all of this up, which it, it pretty much goes without saying. And we've, we've mentioned it a couple of times in passing, but if you want to do this stuff, one thing you can't do, and the question I do get asked is, how do I bring the dynamics back into this sound without making it any quieter? That's not going to happen. <laughs> um, if you if you want more day, I mean, you can fake dynamics by, you know, kind of adding distortion and stuff to try and sound, make it sound more exciting and all the rest of it, but none of that's real. All of the strategies that we've been talking about here will add some form of genuine extra dynamics micro or macro dynamics back into the sound and hopefully will give you more space more life more energy more openness in the sound kind of demodify what you had to begin with um but only if you're prepared to back the level off by probably several dbs i mean it depends how hard something was pushed to begin with but you're definitely going to need that space to let the music breathe coming back to a point that we made earlier on in the episode Maybe that your clients don't want that. If if their goal was loudness, they might be uh, open to the idea of more dynamics, but not at the expense of loudness. And if that happens, then you probably have a a situation where you just can't win. Um, but that could be a good excuse to point them at loudnesspenalty.com and just ask them to preview. You know, okay, here's the here's the master, the best that I can do with the original dynamics, and it's okay. 3 dBs louder, but here's the the more dynamic version, the version I've been working on. And when they hear it through the loudness normalization processing that happens online, where the loud stuff is turned down, and they hear those two versions at an equal loudness. If you've done your job well, there's a good chance that they will prefer the more dynamic version, even though it's a bit quieter. And that could be a real win. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, I think we've... Uh, Covered everything I had in my list. John, is there anything else that has occurred to you along the way? I think that covers it. Excellent. So the final thing to say is to bring everything full circle and say, you know, I hope that the the ideas and strategies we've been talking about in this episode have been helpful, but please don't use them. Um, <laughs> please uh, go back to your clients or go back to your own mix um, and try and fix it before the mastering stage, because that will always be a better solution, even if it's automating the master fader bus or just backing off that limiter by a couple of dBs, whatever it might be, you know, dialing down the ratios on the bus compressor slightly. That's always going to be a better solution than trying to fix it afterwards. Because basically what we're talking about here, even something like declipping is an imperfect solution to the problem. So uh, the best possible result is, is to work from the mix. I've said this before, but I think it's worth adding in this particular episode. For me personally, in those situations where I've talked to the client and asked, you know, is there a version available that's not been pushed as hard? I have a 100% success rate with achieving a result that I and they prefer to the previous overcooked mix. Um, genuinely, I, when, when the answer is yes, and they have a version for me that has more dynamics, because you have the super loud version that you can use as a reference. So you know what the goal was in terms of the energy and the intent and the the intensity that they wanted. You know, there's going to have been a reason probably that, that they made it sound that way. 
And the great thing about being able to go back to the mix with that as a reference point is you can probably achieve something that sounds the same, but even better. Um, and yeah, that's just been really successful for me. So I really encourage anybody out there. It's always worth a try. You don't want to push it to the point where you're going to annoy somebody. You know, it's just a polite question, but it can reap rewards. So really encourage people to try that. So uh, thank you, John, for helping me out as always and for mixing the episode. Yep, my pleasure. And thank you to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music as always. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.